Hello everyone, the podcast is back. I've been updating my patrons regularly on what's been going on, but in brief, I took three weeks away from the pod to let me get the latest round of editing done on the book. It was submitted on Friday, and I was very glad to see it go. During these last three weeks, I've been working hard, uh, not going out, not doing anything really, except uh, work on the book, so I was happy to be interrupted by the postman. It gave me an excuse to leave the desk and actually open the door to some sunlight and fresh air. Well, it wasn't Royal Mail, it was FedEx. A box had arrived from America and it was full of civil defence leaflets and booklets. It was sent to me by a very kind podcast patron, John Lane. And then a second batch arrived a few days later. Well, it's a real treasure trove and I haven't had the time to properly scrutinise and read them all. But now it's uh, Wednesday morning and I can roll my sleeves up and properly go through these papers and start sharing the good stuff with you. Leafing through the papers, I found uh, one folder containing familiar words, words which just leapt out at me, words I know well, (laughs) depression, avoidance, aggression, regression, discomfort. And I thought, yeah, we'll start with this one. The folder it's from is called Shelter Habitability and it's a study of how civilians might behave when penned into a communal fallout shelter with hundreds, perhaps thousands of others. The document is from the Office of Civil Defence in Battle Creek in Michigan and is from 1970. But first, some uh, context on Battle Creek, Michigan. It sounds uh, quaint and rural, but Google Maps shows me it's actually a city, and it's where the Kellogg's Cereal Company started. In terms of being a nuclear target, Battle Creek is home to Fort Custer, which is a National Guard training facility. But during the Cold War, it was, uh, quoting from Wikipedia, home to units of the Navy Reserve in 1949, and to a Marine Corps Reserve Tactical Bridge Company in 1952. Also during that time, approximately 17,000 troops were trained for the Korean War, and Fort Custer served as an induction centre for draftees. Beginning in 1959, Fort Custer served for a decade as part of the North American Air Defence System. So in Battle Creek, apart from hosting that uh, potential target, it also sits right in between Chicago and Detroit. So even if Battle Creek avoided a direct hit in any nuclear war, it would of course be at risk of fallout from those two big city targets. And now I turn to the newspaper archives to find out more about Battle Creek and its civil defence arrangements. A few months ago, I bought access to American newspaper archives and I'm able to search the pages of the Battle Creek Inquirer, their local paper. That's my Patreon funding, which pays for that. So thank you to everyone who contributes. You've allowed me to spend the morning in the Battle Creek newspapers. So before we turn to the study on behaviour in communal shelters, let's look at private domestic shelters. We know, of course, that there was a 
a so-called shelter craze in America in the late 50s and early 60s. And it was no different in Battle Creek. The local paper went along to a house on Graves Avenue in the city where the Reichert family had built what the paper called the best private shelter in the city. It was estimated in 1977 that 600 homes in Battle Creek had built a private shelter. But here on Graves Avenue was the best one. You might expect it to be a good one, as the guy who built it back in 1958 was the owner of a local steel company. And the bunker contained eight double bunk beds, enough for the family and some employees of the steelworks. We might wonder, was he making space for his workers because he was a benevolent and kindly employer? Or was he being practical, assessing that if he was able to emerge from his shelter with a a bunch of tough and hardy steel workers with knowledge of how to reconstruct the ruined city, then he might be able to ensure his own survival and indeed prominence in post-apocalyptic Battle Creek. That's something they don't tell you in civil defence booklets. They always stress, get a tin opener, get lots of water, get disinfectant. They don't say, get yourself a bunch of steel workers. So, down in this uh, wonderful bunker on Graves Avenue in Battle Creek, there was a, a toilet down there and a hand pump to draw in water from a nearby well. There were some oxygen tanks, plus tins of food, of course, Lots of mason jars full of, by now, spoiled vegetables. There were cartons of powdered milk and lots of old magazines from 1958. There were also two escape hatches, both of them filled with sand. The idea there is that the sand absorbs any blast wave which might pass over the shelter. But if you need to escape through those hatches, you would unbolt them open the hatch and let all the sand rush down into the shelter, leaving you with a clear route out. The paper tells us that the wrench to loosen the bolts of the escape hatch was still in position, just waiting there to be used. The shelter entrance also had a steel apron which would provide cover so the Reichert family could shoot at any neighbours who tried to gain access to the shelter. Another resident across town had the same idea about defending his own shelter, telling the newspaper, quote, When the roof falls in on this country in a few months, I don't want a whole army of people blasting their way in. This man, who asked to remain anonymous, said he imagined chaos erupting in America in the 70s, spurred by government spending bringing about an economic crash worse than the Depression. The article says, quote, there will be gangs of people fighting for food. The Soviets will hit us with nuclear weapons during our chaos. Another article I found in the Battle Creek newspaper tells of a private fallout shelter built into a hillside beside the summer home of Mr and Mrs Alvin Corfitson at 3453 West Beckley Road. Now, given all the talk about having to shoot your neighbours if they try to gain access. Why were these people plastering their address all over the paper? 
It's like those people who win the lottery and are daft enough to be photographed popping champagne and waving giant checks. You're just making yourself a target. For God's sake, keep it quiet. If we scoot across town in Battle Creek to Lakeview High School, we learn it was built in 1960, at the height of the shelter craze, so obviously had a fallout shelter fitted in the basement. By the 1970s, when this article appeared and when the cold war had entered its period of détente, it had been cleared and was used for school archery practice. But back in the 60s, when it was first kitted out, the fallout shelter area was filled with 1,000 large cans of survival crackers, 200 folding beds, half a dozen toilet pots with lids, lots of toilet paper, and a box of equipment to measure radiation. There were also sedatives stored down there. But in 1971, the school was told to get rid of them, as there were fears that kids would break in and take the pills. In the wider community, Battle Creek had space for 173,000 people in its network of public fallout shelters. This is, says the paper, more than enough for everyone in the area. That's the benefit, of course, of being a relatively small city. It could be technically possible to offer shelter space for everyone. The problem then is educating people about where they are, how to get there in time, what supplies to bring, and, as you will discuss in this episode, how to behave whilst you're stuck in there for two weeks. So then, let's turn to our archives. The papers I have here are from the Staff College of the Office of Civil Defence in Battle Creek. The college opened in the city in 1955, and there were other colleges across the country, training a range of people about civil defence from firemen and doctors to bankers and business owners. It would be the equivalent of Britain's Easingwold and Teamouth Castle civil defence colleges. And we will focus today on their course from 1970, which taught people how to manage conditions and how to manage people in a communal fallout shelter. But first, a brief recap on fallout shelters for any new listeners. America had, of course, as we've discussed, private shelters, which a a worried homeowner could build or have built for him in the garden or basement. These, uh, depending on the construction, could defend, or could claim to defend, against blast and fallout. And then there were also communal fallout shelters in the larger towns and cities. These would just be spaces in basements of large public buildings, and so of course could offer no particular help against blast. The only way these buildings, and their shelters, would still be intact would be if they were outside the blast and fire zones. In that case, then sure, by all means, duck inside for two weeks until the fallout decreases. If all had gone to plan, the federal government would have funded water, rations, bedding, etc. And the local authorities would have been responsible for distributing it, arranging it, maintaining it. And then, if the dreaded time came, 
You could expect to have hundreds, uh, maybe even thousands, depending on the size of the shelter. And those people would need some kind of organisation, assistance, direction, uh, control. And that is what this course tried to teach its attendees. It wasn't a new concept, of course. Uh, Brisson had something similar during the Blitz, with uh, shelter wardens responsible for the bigger shelters and ARP wardens at least popping in during the night to the smaller shelters on their patch. As an aside, um, I dwell on the idea of being in a neighbourhood shelter. Of course, during the Blitz, it made sense to be in one. But the idea of being stuck underground in a crowd of people with the prospect, of course, of the shelter taking a direct hit and so being perhaps buried alive in there, it's horrific. Even without the idea of a direct hit, it sets off my panic and claustrophobia. So what's better, being down there or taking your chances above ground. I've read quite a lot of Blitz diaries and it was quite common for people to eventually become quite blasé and think, well, if there's a bomb out there with your name on it, meaning if it's going to get you, then it will. Think of those who died in the direct hit on Balham Underground Station. They were sheltering in accordance with all of the rules and guidance and it still got them. At the same time, there were plenty of stories of people above ground whose house was hit and yet they walked away without a scratch. So, is it better to take your chances above ground or to go under? If you look at the James Herbert novel, The Rats, it opens with an account of a nuclear explosion in London. Now, I don't especially recommend this book, um, I don't particularly like it, but you can download the Kindle preview for nothing if you want to at least read the nuclear explosion part. Anyway, when the siren goes off, there's a policeman trying to herd the crowds into an underground station, and he gets swept along in the crush. He is slowly being suffocated, and his arm has been broken, I think, and if I'm remembering it right, he's down there in the underground, slowly having the breath squeezed from him, and he thinks... For God's sake, where is this nuclear bomb? Just hurry up and be done with it. Because he's suffering so much down in the shelter. Hurry up, nuclear bomb. You know, so much for a four minute warning. So anyway, my point is that conditions in a shelter could, uh, would, might be absolutely horrible. If not downright dangerous. And so the idea was to appoint a shelter warden or a shelter manager to at least try and keep some kind of order to offer some kind of reassurance. So my papers here open with a short declaration of the duties of a shelter manager in America. There are two sections here, I'll read them to you. And I'll stop saying shelter warden, which is what they were called in Britain in the Blitz. Here they are, public shelter managers. And here are their two main duties, according to the files here with me. Section 1. In case of national emergency, public shelter managers duly appointed by the civil defence director shall open shelters, take charge of all stocks of food, water and other supplies stored in said shelter, 
admit the public according to the shelter's operational plan as approved by the Civil Defence Director, take whatever control measures are necessary for the protection and safety of the occupants, and for turning over the shelter in good condition to its lawful owner at termination of occupancy. That's very optimistic there at the end. Handing it all back, nice and clean and shipshape, when everything's nice and safe again. Uh, Section 2. Public shelter managers and their authorised deputies are authorised to use whatever restraint is necessary against those who refuse to cooperate in orderly entry into the shelter and with the routine of shelter living under emergency conditions as set forth in the approved operation plan for the shelter. Now that's a bit um, intimidating, a bit grim, isn't it? Whatever restraint is necessary against those who are not being orderly. But we'll come to that later. I'll be doing this in two parts because the file is quite lengthy. So the next page is a a copy of a shelter registration form, which will be given to each uh, household to fill in, like a nuclear census. But who has time for bureaucracy and admin in nuclear war? But then, of course, let's not think that a nuclear war would be like it is in threads, which you know is my obsession. And of course, that's how I always picture it. It could, uh, could in theory, be a limited nuclear war. Or, given the huge expanse of America, there could be areas relatively untouched, where a big town is able to keep itself ticking over. And so, a bit of admin and a bit of a headcount wouldn't be a ridiculous idea. The form asks the head of the household to fill in name, address, um, any skills he has and any illnesses he has and to do the same for every member of his household. The part about noting your skills and illnesses is um, either eminently practical as it would allow the post-attack authorities to match people to tasks to which they are fitted Or, if you're a pessimist, it could be a quick way of sorting and labelling the the weak, the unproductive, the burdens on society. The form also asks the household to note the names of any family members who are not present and to give their presumed whereabouts. This, of course, could be aimed at, hopefully one day, matching and reuniting families. I just find the idea of Armageddon admin hard to deal with. You've heard the siren, you've rushed to the shelter, the world is ending around you, and someone leans over to say, excuse me, have you got a pen? But maybe that's just a failing in my own imagination. I can only imagine, or I automatically imagine, all-out nuclear war. But of course there are different scenarios. Um, If you think of the nuclear war novel Alas Babylon by Pat Frank, it's set in a small town uh, in Florida, which is not directly hit. And I remember there's a scene in the local uh, post office or local shop where I think they're listening to the radio 
It's been years since I read it. And the radio flickers and dips and cuts out. And that's it. That's their indication that the bomb has dropped. No sirens, no screaming, no terrible flash in the sky. Just dodgy radio reception. So yes, let's try and remember there must be a million ways to experience nuclear war. And perhaps one of them allows for tidy record-keeping. The next page of my file here tells the shelter manager how to help prevent fires in the shelter. I'll just skip this. There's nothing particularly interesting there. It's just the standard fire safety advice. Don't bring in flammable liquids, uh, store any rubbish outside the shelter, etc. The next page, more interesting, is entitled Sleeping Arrangements. And there is far more detail given about sleep than there is about fire prevention. It advises setting up bunk beds around the walls, around the edge of the shelter space. And then you can add further rows of bunks down the middle. But these can be moved or dismantled during the day to free up space. Now, that seems like a lot of work. Assembling and disassembling and shifting the bunks, but then... Maybe that's the point, to keep people occupied, keep them busy, steer them away from dark thoughts and brooding silence. We're also told that if there aren't enough bunks for everyone, then people can sleep in shifts. You've heard of hot desking in an office, this is hot bedding in a shelter. So people would sleep in shifts, taking turns in the beds. But if you do that then it means that you can't shift and remove the beds during the day. Or you can't do any kind of activity that would cause noise or disturbance. So if you need to tiptoe constantly around because your shelter buddies are having their turn at sleeping, then that would mean living in extraordinarily unnatural conditions. Not being able to talk cry, do exercise, play some kind of game to pass the time. Now that is going to build up a terrible amount of tension and frustration. But the document does refer to this, saying, quote, If shift sleeping is used, quiet hours must be enforced in the sleeping area. Continual loss of sleep makes individuals increasingly irritable and will present behavioural problems. But another solution to a shortage of bunk beds is the hope that some people will have brought bedding with them and so can make up a bed on the floor. Ideally, people would have had the, the time, the money and the presence of mind to bring packed lunches, rations, water and bedding and either add that to the common stock or use that themselves and free up the shelter rations and supplies for others. But that presents its own problems, of course, if people bring their own stuff, because we all know those annoying people on flights who ignore the rules about carry-on luggage and try to haul their whole wardrobe on board. So would you see families turning up at the shelter with everything but the kitchen sink? And if so, how do you organise and control what they bring in. People are going to be rushing into the shelter. There won't be time to 
pass through some kind of shelter security where they pat you down and make sure you don't have anything flammable, anything dodgy, anything too bulky, that you're not going to be dragging in so much stuff that you hog all the space. As with so much civil defence planning, a lot, a lot of stuff depends on humans being rational, sensible, free of emotion. The next section is called Information and Reporting and it's about the shelter manager's duty to give information to people in the shelter. Information about what's going to happen, um, how life will be arranged during the shelter period and of course information about conditions outside. Is the war over? Did we win? What are the radiation levels? How soon can we get out? What will we be going outside to? The document says that giving out information will help keep people calm and cooperative and that, quote, it should be remembered that rumours start more easily and are a greater problem under stress conditions. Rumours can be more easily controlled by information that is adequate, accurate, clear and concise. Now, there will need to be a very careful balancing act here because surely... If the information you have as shelter manager is um, horrific, depressing, frightening, then there's a risk you will cause panic, uh, even suicides, if you impart that information. But, as mentioned, withholding it will simply start rumours and could also goad the suspicion that the authorities are keeping you in ignorance uh, deliberately working against you, and so it would open up a divide from the very outset between the civilians and the authorities. There then follows a lot of forms for the shelter manager to fill in, keeping records of temperature and humidity in the shelter, noting radiation levels, listing the medical supplies and the food stocks, keeping a record of any sickness in the shelter and any medication issued. And there's also a space to note down the content of any messages received from outside. Then we have a list of other workers in the shelter. So it's not just a shelter manager who's in charge. Uh, There would be lots of others. Of course, we can assume this would only apply in a large communal shelter. So beside the shelter manager, we have an admin clerk, responsible for all those forms we discussed earlier. We have someone in charge of maintenance and repair, His job description refers to the awful task of disposing of waste and of the dead. We have someone in charge of religious affairs. His duties are, quote, 1. Plans and conducts religious worship and related programmes. 2. Acts as counsellor in emotional problems when requested by the manager. We can suspect that guy would be busy. There is also someone in charge of recreation and they will arrange individual and group participation for the shelter occupants. Now that job would require a lot of creativity. Can you turn people's thoughts away from the Holocaust with a a spot of monopoly? Would it be some communal storytelling? Would it be singing? Will it be a giant game of I Spy? I spy with my little eye, something beginning with D. Dry rations? 
drums of water? Despair? And we will look at part two next week. So thank you for listening. I'm so glad to be back to podcasting. I will give you more updates on the progress of the book when I have it. It is currently with uh, a copy editor. So for now at least, um, I don't have any more work to do on the book. It's gone back to the publisher. And I can get back to podcasting. And of course, in a couple of weeks, I go to Sheffield. And I'm going to do lots of filming and recording of all the Threads locations. And I will, of course, put any film up on YouTube. So I'm going to use the, the bit of free time I have at the moment to revive my YouTube channel and give it some proper attention. Of course, I'm on YouTube as Atomic Hobo, if you want to find me there. You can also find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. And let me thank my new patrons who've signed up in the past couple of weeks. Thank you and welcome to Hannah Halls, Catherine Dobson, Andy Hall, Paul Watkins and Fiona Armfield. Thank you for supporting my work, my podcast, my nuclear research. I'm grateful to every single one of you. And if you want to join my Patreon, please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and be assured that you can cancel at any time. I know, of course, with the cost of living crisis that we're having here in Britain, you might think a a bloody podcast doesn't merit any extra cash, but yep, you can choose the amount you pay each month and you can cancel whenever you want. So there we are, the podcast is back and I'm so happy to be at my desk with the microphone and with Bomba snoring at my feet, snoring gently, so I don't think I'll need to edit out any snorts. Thank you all for listening.